This paid podcast is produced by Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. All uses of trademarks or brands are not meant to convey sponsorship or affiliation of this podcast. From Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate, this is The Relentless, a podcast about looking at sales differently. What if? What if I thought outside the box? What if it was more of a celebration with our clients than work? In every episode, we're pulling back the curtain with thought leaders across industries and talking about how they embrace change, overcome hurdles, and stay relentless. I'm Dr. Julie Gurner. I've spent over a decade studying the behaviors of the ultra-successful and have used those insights to empower business leaders in finance, technology, and real estate. Think globally, act locally. It's a methodology embraced by entrepreneurs that are looking to make the leap to scale and grow their business. Whether it's expanding within your community or halfway around the world, Going Global requires you to be nimble yet consistent to provide valuable and customizable service. Having a global mindset allows you to shift and grow, and no one knows that better than our guest, Kyle York. This is Kyle York. I'm a startup investor and advisor to entrepreneurs. He's currently the CEO and co-founder of York IE, a company that advises entrepreneurs and helps reshape the way startups are built, scaled, and optimized. Yeah, I've been very focused on helping entrepreneurs, you know, really think locally, but also scaling globally with a local heart and global ambition. He previously served as the general manager and chief strategy officer at Dyne, the leading cloud-based internet infrastructure company. We specialize in the domain name system. So we basically helped companies connect their end users to the infrastructure behind those websites. Companies like Twitter, the New York Times, Amazon, and Netflix. And believe it or not, that's getting more and more complicated, obviously, as the internet gets larger and larger and audiences get more and more global. But long before Kyle was supporting these giants of the internet and catering to global audiences, he had to learn to help customers at his family's sporting goods store in New Hampshire. And there was nothing digital about it. Up until my dad retired in June of 2018, uh, running the sports shop, uh, he was still doing paper receipts. He did nothing online. All of his inventory management was on clipboards, done with pencil uh, and paper. And... You know, I think along the way over the years, obviously, myself and my four brothers were always pushing my parents to, you know, embrace uh, technology and the Internet for, you know, obviously efficiencies, but also for innovation and growth. But, you know, they were comfortable in the business they had built, which was a phenomenal one. And it supported the five kids and, and the lives that we were able to get. But Kyle was always drawn to technology. And eventually he would get into the business of Internet infrastructure. When he joined Dyne, he never imagined how big it would become. When I joined, it was 15 engineers. I was the first sort of go-to-market leadership hire, uh, running sales and marketing and growth for that company. And we scaled the business to $100 million of annual recurring revenue and sold it to Oracle in 2016. It was a phenomenal run. We learned a lot along the way, but you know, we weren't your traditional tech Silicon Valley startup who raised a ton of money and you know had a bunch of you know talented team members who had done it three times before. We were kind of first-time entrepreneurs and startup hustlers uh, learning on the fly. We we're also the management team at the time when I joined was all in our mid-20s, so we didn't have decades of experience. So we sort of had to write a lot of our own plays. We had to uh, trial and error a lot of things, and we built a real global business 
it came from very humble beginnings and and scaling companies to that level of scale. We were 500 employees. We had offices in Brighton, England and Singapore and Australia and California. We built something very special and I'm very proud of it. It's nice to look back on it in hindsight. It's not always easy and it's not always so glamorous in the throes of scaling. So can you tell me a little bit about Dine in the early days? And the company, you know, it was predominantly engineers. Uh, They worked on something that was a three-letter acronym, DNS, the domain name system. No one really understood it. We predominantly worked with home consumers at the time. I mean, think days before we had laptops and, you know, mobile devices connected all to your home network. This technology didn't exist, so you had to be a real tech geek to to do this on your own. And, And then what they realized was companies were starting to no longer buy physical hardware and servers to run their web applications and websites, mm-hmm. they were starting to use someone else's, the clouds, and renting it from the likes of Amazon Web Services, AWS, or Google, or Rackspace was a managed hosting company at the time. So it was, it was a lot of market timing that had to do with it. But really, you know, my role was really to try to be a shot in the arm at building a brand, taking that brand to customers, conveying a value proposition to which these B2B businesses would want to give us some money for the services we provided. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about your relationship to the customers at Dine because it was a very locally oriented business, but it had a reputation for absolutely extraordinary service. In fact, you know, one of the things that I I do admire about the company is that you really turned customers into evangelists. And when you all did seek money, it was your customers who gave you your first round. Our customers were internet businesses that were based everywhere and had end customers everywhere. And I think that from day one was the nature of the business. And even though it started with these consumer roots, it started in a dorm room at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Mass. The the company never raised outside capital from 2001 when it was incorporated all the way to 2012. The first money it raised, and I did that in air quotes, was uh, actually a donation button thrown on the website for these consumers to help support this project. And I think that connection to customers, I mean, definitely survived all the way through the independence of We worked like heck inside Oracle after our acquisition in 2016 to make sure the customer was always put first. And, you know, I think that DNA was super important um, the entire ride. So can you give any insights, like any tips on how to make sure that as you're scaling your business, you really keep the customer front and center? You are nothing without your customers. And I think when you look at venture-funded businesses or outside-funded businesses, so those listeners, you know, you might have, you know, a friend who's helping fund your new company, or you might be investing your own capital into your new real estate business or what have you. I think it's important to realize that the customer isn't the investor. The customer is the customer. And many times you see so much focus on shareholders when the focus really needs to be on stakeholders. Because if you focus your energy and effort on those stakeholders, those customers, those partners, then everything will work out just fine for the shareholders. And we really focused hard on that, again, from the very beginning on the consumer side of the business. But as we went B2B, business to business, and started to scale out our company, we created what we call the customer advisory board. We put our customers in lights and use them as a sounding board. And it was a a universally uh, valuable and rewarding engagement to have with one another. And I think that is something that I don't think enough companies 
obsess over? How do they turn their best customers, their most loyal customers into their biggest advocates and evangelists to amplify their message? And it's a tough weave. You know, you can't abuse them, right? You can't have, you know, one customer doing five, you know, reference calls a day, right? I mean, I think pretty quickly they'll get burned out and say, hey, I Mm -hmm. think I've helped enough. Um, So you definitely need to be able to build programs that make this scalable. And I think it can apply to any business. You've also gone through some real world crises. Like in 2016, there was a cyber attack on Dyne and it really had large scale impact. And I just wondered if you could share a little bit about what happened and your trajectory through that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when you're operating internet infrastructure services, you know, it's the plumbing and the electricity behind the internet. And that was the responsibility and the accountability that we had as Dyne as an internet infrastructure or a steward of the internet. And that day, October 21st, 2016, there was a distributed denial of service attack is what it's called. And they sent a barrage of traffic at our infrastructure servers. There was performance degradation all throughout the world and actual real issues on the East Coast of the U.S. A dirty secret about that day that not a lot of people know is the night before I was up very late with our board and we executed the letter of intent with Oracle to be acquired and sent it to Oracle and said, thanks, we look forward to your countersign. Wow. So I wake up at 8 a.m., our largest customer in the world, Amazon, is calling me frantically because they're seeing some issues on our network. And we had to decide, how are we going to react? We knew from a customer perspective that customers were going to be impacted and how we responded, how we communicated proactively, consistently, was going to make or break You know what happened with Oracle, but also just what happened with the future of our customers and our careers. You know, In a matter of hours, we were able to get services restored. It was just a, a miraculous day. Now, right in the middle of this day, Oracle countersigned our agreement because they saw our response. Wow. Yeah, it really does demonstrate that leadership doesn't just happen when things are going well, but that you can also provide leadership when things are not going so well. You have real-world experience in some of the worst tragedies the Internet has seen, but have really pulled through for the consumer. I think anyone can really learn from those messages, right? You can have the biggest real estate deal of your career fall through, and though it's devastating in the moment, staying focused on the customer and on making that sale still has to be where your focus remains. It teaches the customers what they can expect from you, and it keeps your business grounded. So when you talk about evolving a company, how do you know it's time to go global? So there's one thing to have a customer base that's global. It's another thing to start to employ staff and to go through sort of legal and tax and regulatory efforts, office space, all those things, um, and expand, you know, your company globally. We, because of the internet, you know, you could put a credit card in on our website the day we launched and be anywhere in the world and buy our services, right? And it was software delivered over the internet. When we went business to business, you know, our lead forms where people would go on our website and, and submit to talk to us or send us an email, these companies could be anywhere in the world. And, and right away, that we had to do business with them. I think one thing we, we realized fast was that we were an American-based company. We we're, were a U.S.-based company and that we weren't overnight going to have jurisdiction, you know, legal entities in every part of the world. So we had to sort of be over. And we also weren't going to be able to translate our website or our contracts or our, our software portals into 50 different languages overnight either. That would be crippling to our business's ability to be successful. So we decided right away we're going to anchor in supporting these companies from the States. We still went 24-7. We had folks who worked overnight, you know, and then as we started to get to some critical mass and some scale in both customers 
customer base and revenue, that's when, and at that time, when we decided, okay, maybe it's time to go into Europe. And, you know, I think beyond that, we ended up going from Europe and then we followed the sun and we went all the way um, into an office in Singapore and an office in uh, Sydney, Australia. So, but it happened in a nice sequence at a right, at the right pace where mm-hmm. the business supported the opportunity and enabled us to, to go bigger with it. I love that. So the business is supporting that opportunity. You have to wait until the initial business is at a certain level. And when you're crafting this team and you're hiring talent that expands in the way that you did, you know, you're starting from a place like Manchester, New Hampshire. How do you go about uh, kind of searching for that talent? Yeah. So first and foremost, in New Hampshire, I mean, we knew right away we needed to be an employer of choice. It was a lot of the sort of intangible, softer things out of the gate. As we obviously started to grow and have, you know, customers funding our scale, we were able to start to, you know, pay more market rates and increase and improve our benefits. And that really is where the tipping point happened here in New Hampshire at our headquarters, at least, where, you know, that's we became the employer choice where people wanted to work if you were in tech. So one and then when we went internationally, you know, we actually screwed up the first time. I mean, we went to London, which couldn't have been more culturally different than Manchester, New Hampshire. And I always say there's two types of people. There's there's builders and there's managers. And, you know, that's a different sort of concept. We were hiring managers internationally because we were saying, we already have customers. Let's hire some management to help us manage those customers. Customers don't want to be managed, right? And so, and offices can't be managed. They need to be built. So we ended up actually moving that office to Brighton, England, uh, kind of similarly, honestly, from Boston to Manchester, it was it was London to Brighton. And we realized that you couldn't take the exact same culture and move it down into a different part of the world. You had to have obviously core principles of how you treat your employees, how you work with customers, you know, how you build products and ship products and support uh, the technology in the in the market. But you know, you're going to obviously have different people with different backgrounds. And I, we used to always joke it was kind of like a bizarro world, especially the British office. It was like a bizarro world version. Like there was a version of me over there, a gentleman named <laughs> Paul Haywood. Like he kind of looked like me, kind of talked like me, but you know, said things like "lovely" and "cheers" and had an accent and, and, you know, liked uh, cricket and rugby and, and, and soccer. And I was like, oh, wait a second. We're like kind of the same, but we're different. Um, and that honestly was how it, how it shaped up. And that carried forth all the way into Singapore and Sydney as well. So what advice would you have practically for someone who's making moves to go global with their company, but would like to scale in a very thoughtful way? Yeah. So I think I spent an unbelievable amount of time throughout Europe, you know, everywhere from Amsterdam to Dublin, to Berlin, to London, to Brighton. I was all over the place trying to determine what was the right location for us. So, you know, we spent a lot of time on the ground, myself, other leadership, meeting with customers, meeting with potential employees and partners in these regions, learning the lay of the land. And I think that's critical. And then once you decide to open, I'd highly recommend uh, transplanting somebody from your headquarters uh, into these regions. Remember also, you're probably not going to just nail everything just like in business right the first time every time. But again, stay the course. Uh, Don't be weary. Play the long game. So that's a great takeaway. Are there any lessons that you learned from global expansion at Dine that really you're able to bring to your roles today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, active today, I have about 60 portfolio companies that I've invested in or I'm on boards of or or my company has, you know, strategic advisory in or we're consulting with. So we've got a myriad of companies across industries. 
all trying to disrupt the markets they're in. And, you know, I think each of them are trying to figure out sequence and pace to growth. One of those levers is very much international, finding new customer bases, reaching new audiences. Um, But there's loads of different you know, levers to growth. There could be different types of sales teams. There could be different pricing strategies or contracting strategies. Once you do that and you establish your business model and your operating model and what teams and people you need, and you know know that core DNA, when I say break the model, what I mean is what new investments am I going to make? What acquisitions am I going to make? Or new product launches am I going to have? Or what international market am I going to enter? And these are the knobs and levers that I talk about that, that aren't baseline part of your operating plan, but that the things that can take you through the moon. And I think that's what's important. A lot of our listeners are real estate agents, and they're not necessarily going to scale their businesses kind of globally in this big, splashy way, like maybe a large corporation might. But they know that having a global mindset still matters. So what are some small steps they can take to just be more open to international opportunities? Well, I think it's important to sort of set your goals and your ambition. You know, I think you can be a realtor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who is world-renowned for teaching the the world the learnings you've had and how great you are, right? Uh, there's a actually great local realtor here in town who I absolutely love. She's, she's a wonderfully passionate, kind of emotionally connected local realtor that works with a lot of friends and family. And she's putting her learnings on the internet every single day. And she's just using Facebook Live and she's just engaging the market. You know, embrace your unique differentiation, sort of regardless of scale or reach opportunity that you see. I think it's just incredibly important to be the best you can be in your environment. But also, if you're really, really good and differentiated in some way, share that with the world because people want to see it. Yeah. And I think a side benefit is that it may actually attract international customers who may be buying a house in Baton Rouge or or buying a house in New Hampshire, that they see your content, they look for you online, and you're the person who really stands out to them. Yeah. And if you want to scale, innovate, right? I mean, let's say you do want to scale and you're in real estate. Well, it doesn't mean you're a realtor in real estate, it might say, hey, maybe there's some technology tools that you know I've been leveraging that, oh, man, maybe I should hire a software developer and make this better. Or, geez, maybe I should put out a blog or maybe I should you know, start doing online curriculum. I mean, and it's about taking that unique experiences and broadening the business lens uh, a bit to what you might want to become. Not everybody is going to have the same level of ambition or goals or reach or scale. And and honestly, I can say firsthand, it's not all glamour to grow and scale. I mean, geez, we had friends who lost jobs or people I had to fire or, you know, different investors along the way, customers that quit on us. You know, I, I mean, it's just not all rosy all the time. So, you know, no different than your day-to-day job if you're a sole proprietor, you know, it, it's hard. So I think, you know, making sure you really truly are aligned with the people you work with on what you're trying to build and and stick and do it is important. If you can talk a little bit, because you've mentioned that it isn't all glamorous, and I'm wondering if you can give an example of a really rough patch that you've had personally in your journey. As the company scaled and got bigger and bigger, you know, our board and investors wanted to continue to hire uh, people who had been there, done that right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have experience running a 500-person company and, you know, multi-hundred-person sales and marketing teams. Um, and, you know, the board wanted to hire those types of people. And I really struggled with what that meant to me career-wise. Like, what does it mean to be a leader 
versus a manager? You know, is it about a big team? Is it about your voice? Is it about your external evangelism? Is it internal? Is it with customers? You know, you really start to soul search on skills and can I scale? And, you know, and there was times, honestly, where it was affecting my health. I mean, I remember laying on MRI tables, you know, visiting doctors because I was getting migraines, actually the first and only time in my life. And I thought I had a brain tumor or something, you know? And so, and it was all just because I thought the powers that be, the man, you know, in air quotes, you know, the board, Mm -hmm. the investors, you know, the hired gun executives, I thought they were all attacking me and I didn't feel like I was being treated fairly. But what it really came down to is I felt like I was losing control, right? And when you feel like you're losing control, you know, weird things can happen, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And so it ended up turning out that I just had migraines. I was stressed. I powered through it. I stayed committed. And I ended up being the general manager of Dyn and the VP of product in Oracle Cloud Infrastructure for three years. And here I am now with my own firm, controlling my own destiny with my friends. And, you know, sometimes in the moment you forget that careers are long, that people aren't attacking you. And, you know, and, and I, I just, I implore people to make sure they look to their support systems and to their loyalists in those hard times, because those are the people that are going to carry forward with you and they'll be there for you forever. So, Kyle, one of the things we always ask people who come on the podcast is, what does being relentless mean to you? Being relentless to me means you're never going to give up at all costs. You're going to maintain conviction. You're going to set a vision for yourself on that path. You're going to stay in the guardrails of the goals you set for yourself, but you're going to be relentless to get there and you will not accept failure. And I think that is what relentless means. Kyle, thanks so much for being here. It was a real pleasure to speak with you. I really appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Coming up, we'll talk to a real estate agent in Australia who's found a way to think globally about his growing business. That's in a minute here on The Relentless. Hey, listeners, are you an extraordinary salesperson? Do you pride yourself at responding to customer emails at the speed of light? According to a Century 21 real estate survey, Responsiveness is what clients crave most. 47% surveyed put responsiveness ahead of professionalism, local expertise, and experience as a trait they wanted in their agents. And that's the Century 21 brand approach. C21 agents never settle for an average experience. These are experts who are by your side every step of the way. Be a part of the team of agents that defy mediocrity and deliver the extraordinary. To find out more, visit century21.com slash careers. Before the break, we heard about how having a global mindset really influenced Kyle York's work in a direct way. But we were curious about how small business entrepreneurs look outward and take steps that are inherently global in order to grow. Whether it's attracting international clients or tapping into the local immigrant community, there are steps you can take to make sure you're not operating in a bubble. So we turn to Australia to talk to a Century 21 real estate agent there. I'm Nick Pappas. I'm from Century 21 Eastern Beaches, Maroubra. I think Australia itself is is so multicultural and you've got people from all different parts of the world that are, are wanting to live in Australia. Fortunately, Maroubra wasn't directly touched by this year's devastating bushfires. 
So Nick jumped at the chance to help out with the recovery efforts. We did an appeal to get people donating food and toiletries and things like that. And I've got an office meeting room at the front. Um, We had that filled to the rims. Like we couldn't actually fit any more things in. We had to sort of stop after two days. Wow. I think that really showed me how lucky I am as well to be working and living in this community. It's not surprising that Nick is ranked in the top 1% of agents in his network, as well as globally. And for a while, he's been noticing this trend of relocation to Australia from Asia, America, and Europe. And it made him think. Well, you know, why aren't I helping these people relocate? Why aren't I helping these people try and find their feet here in, in Sydney, where I work, where they want to be? And once he started... Just naturally progressed that I'd help one family, which led to the, that family talking to the next family, that family talking to the next family, and eventually, without even realizing it, became global. And what he found was that catering to international customers requires a certain amount of openness. We live in a world where things are changing so quickly. I think if you're not open-minded to hearing other people's stories or listening to how they do things, you're only going to go backwards in life or stay stagnant, not not grow. You live and work in Maroubra. It's a suburb of Sydney. Correct. Near the coast. Yeah. Uh, can you paint us a picture of what the community is like, the kinds of people that live there? It is a very coastal lifestyle. So it's a bit like a, I don't know, let's say Hawaii, Waikiki, if that makes sense, you know. Um, everyone's very relaxed. Everyone's very, you know, chilled out. It's a surf community, very coastal community. We've got some beautiful parklands. We've got, I believe, the best coast in the world. You know, earlier in the episode, we heard from Kyle York. He's an entrepreneur in New Hampshire whose digital services really benefited from having a global mindset. When you have a client-based service like real estate, what is the value you see of having a global mindset? I think me keeping my mind on that global mindset and being able to service communities from different parts of the world. It's learning how they interact with business transactions, you know, their morals, their values. It allows me to deal with people on a different level at a different scale and have an understanding of how they want to be dealt with. Every nationality, every country has different customs about how they negotiate. Like I know real estate in America is done very differently to what it's done here in Australia. You know, in in Sydney, Australia, there's no buyer's agent. You're dealing directly with the seller. So you're the middleman. You're the broker trying to broker both, both ends of the deal. Like we've got a lot of Europeans that are buying here as well. And depending on where whereabouts in Europe, sometimes they just sell to people they know. And recently sold a, a house to a, a French family. They said, look, Nick, when we buy a house of somebody in France, we we get to meet the family before we decide to go ahead because we want to know who they are and what they're about. And I thought, wow, like, you know, that doesn't usually happen here. So when I was negotiating with, with this owner, I said, look, I think it's going to be really important that these people get to meet you and your family and understand, you know, how long you've lived here and why you're selling because that's going to be a decision-making thing for them about who you are before they finalize their offer. And I think, you know, if I didn't have some type of global mindset where I was looking at what's going on around the world, how people are transacting and doing business in my industry, that probably wouldn't have got these people to, 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 you know, to pay the best price for the property and, you know, transact on that property. Absolutely. There seems like there's a real openness to it and, you know, a real willingness to understand where other people are coming from. A hundred percent. Because everybody's got a different way of doing things. What part of your everyday work requires a global mindset? 
I think for me, it's just always trying to think outside the box, right? So I believe listening to people like Tom Ferry for me, you know, in, in the morning, I get his emails when I wake up and I, I, I read them and listen to, you know, his little podcast that he has going on. That to me is more of a global thing that I do because I'm listening to someone overseas in a totally different country that's, you know, working real estate. I believe real estate in America is now on the way up. So I'm trying to learn things from how they're doing things over there. Uh, is there a way that you advertise to specifically speak to and reach ethnic communities that helps expand your business? In my community, it's more about word of mouth. In in the Greek community, because I, I, I am of Greek background, I probably get a lot of business out of the Greek community. I've even had a client that came to me only this week. Um, they live in Greece and they've got a property where I where I am. And, and they said, look, Nick, you know, we, we know Century 21 and we know you're involved with, uh, you know, the local Greek school. Um, your kids go there and we've heard about you. We, we'd like to maybe rent or sell our property here in Sydney. So, you know, through through the Greek community more, but uh, more or less around, we've also got a big French community. And I think that's just all word of mouth and, you know, working with them, you know. Same with the Indonesian culture. We've got a big Indonesian culture here. So, so do you make an intentional effort to be a part of those communities and to kind of reach out and be involved? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Like today, we've got a, it's Chinese New Year. So we are having a dragon come to the office today. We're going to do like a huge like sort of walk around the shopping center with a dragon and give out lucky envelopes to all the community because we have a huge Chinese and Malaysian Chinese community here. So we're going to go out and, you know, celebrate with them. Yeah, it sounds like a real appreciation. Yeah, that's right. So everyone who does business on a global scale has times of challenge. You know, Kyle York described a massive cyber attack, for example. And for real estate, it might be economic downturns or changes in the market. So how do you support your global business during challenging times? Well, I think you just got to keep up with what's going on and understand, again, it's understanding their wants and needs. Like, you know, I remember we we had the GFC come here and that was a big thing in, in America. And the downturn in the market here didn't last as long as it did in the US. So we, we had a lot of people, you know, that were here investing in, in, in the US because the market was so low. So we had a lot of clients saying, Nick, why would we buy here? We'd buy in the US. And it's like, okay, great. Well, you know, if you can make money over there, why, why wouldn't you? And But, you know, do you know what's involved with doing that? And they were like, yeah, you just go buy us. It's like, no, it's not that easy. So, you know, we, we had that thing of being able to say, well, look, we can then put you in contact with the right people where you want to buy and let's let's let them help you you know and then the good thing about that is when people make money in real estate what do they do with that money they 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 invest it back into real estate 9 times out of 10 right so we already had those clients that were investing in real estate that were going to make money in the US market that they were eventually going to bring the money back to Sydney and then do do something with real estate here and i had a few clients that were doing that so i suppose i took the positive side of that negative thing that was happening here it was like look yeah, let's help you make money over there. So when you do bring the money back, we can help you invest it here. And, you know, then we both make money together. So it's really playing the long game. A hundred percent. So what's your process for targeting international customers seeking to own homes in your market? For me, a lot of it's probably done now through social media, targeting the right groups where you can find people that are going to be looking into real estate and a lot of my Chinese clients are advertising their different newspapers that I know will go globally and then they've got websites and they advertise on their websites. It seems like you really market to people where they are and not where you want them to be. 
Newspaper marketing may not translate in every area, but you really picked up on the fact that newspapers are a trusted source for the certain communities you cater to. For me, when you're looking in their newspapers, your target, that's a real specific target. So those people that are looking in their newspapers, in, in their community newspapers, in their language and all that, they see you advertise there, then they think, wow, this person's working with our community. So when they're thinking about doing something real estate space, they think of you because you're working in that community. The best digital way you're going to find those community groups as far as think on a global mindset for me is through social media. Social media has helped me grow my business on a digital aspect tremendously. It's like anything, you know, you, you need to engage, you need to get involved. And, you know, I don't know how it is in the US, but in, in, in Sydney, Australia, it's, you know, like a lot of agents are putting up, you know, them driving their fancy cars or, you know, eating at an expensive restaurant and, you know, look, look, look what I sold, look what I did. I take a bit of a different approach. I look at saying, look, this is how I can help you. This is how, you know, a bit of a case study on the sale, not about how flashy the sale was or, you know, like maybe a little bit about the buyer, you know, maybe telling them that, look, you know, this buyer had these struggles and this is what we did to overcome those struggles with them to get them where they needed to be. I I take a bit of a different approach on my social media. It it sounds smart, though. It sounds like this is a way that you really extend your voice to other countries and kind of talk about your values. So what are some key tips that U.S. agents should consider as they adopt a more global mindset with their real estate business? Well, I think you're just broadening your horizons. You know, um, once you start thinking global, you start looking at different people, your referrals are going to be different. You're going to be dealing with a totally different type of clientele. You know, when you're dealing with a global a global client, like, you know, they're not going to be wasting time. They're not going to be going out of their way to, to ring up an agent on the other side of the world. It's just not going to work like that. Like, they're going to be qualified. They're going to be ready to transact and or do business. So I think, you know, you're, you're getting good clients. What are your goals for global growth this year? Um, look, for me this year is like when I look at it globally, just with everything that's happening in Asia, I'm trying to work with a huge Asian community, Chinese community. In the past, they've sort of we had laws that came into Australia that, you know, were not allowing them to invest as much. But I think now they're looking at saying, well, look, we're going to have to sort of loosen those up a little. So for, for me this year, it's about finding ways to interact better with our Asian communities that are wanting to buy into Sydney, because I think there's going to be a huge amount of and an even bigger amount, I should say, because there's already a huge amount, but a bigger amount of, of Asian communities wanting to buy into the Sydney real estate market. Aside from networking, do you have any actionable tips for agents looking to move forward into a more global space and think more globally? Look, just look at your community, look at their needs and, and, and look where they're coming from and, and just look who they are and see what you can do to interact with those needs and, and those wants. And most people today, we, we live in a pretty multicultural, global type of world, you know what I mean, where people are coming from all walks of life, different parts of the world, and they all need somewhere to live. So look at how you can help them. One of the questions that we do ask from everyone who comes on the podcast What does being relentless mean to you? For me, it's about pretty much not giving up. You know, there's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. I think, you know, you just got to look at and say, well, where there's a problem, I'm going to find a solution. I'm not going to indulge in the problem. And I think when you look for solutions in anything in life, life turns out pretty good. Nick Pappas, thank you so much for joining me on The Relentless. 
Julie, no problem. Thank you for having me. It's been good to listen to you guys and uh, can't wait to be part of your, your journey as well. So thank you very much. The Relentless is produced by Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. I'm Dr. Julie Gurner. Thanks so much for listening, and please join us next time. Copyright Century 21 Real Estate, LLC. All rights reserved. Century 21 Real Estate, LLC fully supports the principles of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Opportunity Act. Each office is independently owned and operated. Nothing herein is intended to create an employment relationship. This material may contain suggestions and best practices that you may use at your discretion. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals featured and not necessarily of Century 21 Real Estate.